Hello and welcome to Valley Lights Church Online. Do you ever feel the pressure to measure up to standards that are put on you? I tend to be a pretty driven person and I really have high standards on myself. Um, I've really spent much of my time thinking, you're not doing enough. <laughs> that's the thought that's going through my mind often. I've thought, I'm, I'm, I'm not doing enough when it comes to exercise. Oh, I feel like I'm not doing enough spending time with my family or there's books I know that I should be reading. There's jobs around the house that are piling up. I'm not doing enough when it comes to being active and exercising my political rights or being involved in social justice issues. I'm not doing enough in time with God, um, reading my Bible or praying or, or memorizing scripture. There have been seasons when you're not doing enough is a constant nagging thought like someone's just standing over my shoulder. Everything I do is not enough. That's not enough. You need to do more. Those have been joyless seasons of my life when I've felt that. And I'm really glad that you're listening today. We're going to talk about how to live with hope and joy. My name is Bruce Wood. I'm the lead pastor here at Valley Lights. And we're in the middle of a message series called The Bright Side. We're looking at the book of Philippians. It's a part of the Bible. It's a letter. Um, and today we'll be in chapter 3. But it's a letter written by Paul, a person named Paul. And he wrote a, actually many of the Bible, books of the Bible. But this one has the word joy or rejoice 14 times in it. So a lot of times, like he just kept writing, he put up almost every paragraph. More on this topic of joy than any of his other letters. It's easy to find things. It's really, it's really good that we're looking at his stuff because it's really easy to find things that suck the joy out of life. One of those things is a, is a nagging pressure to measure up to some standard. You might be putting that pressure on yourself, like, like I often do, or there might be people in your life and you feel like you're constantly falling short of their expectations. I, a few years ago, I was working my job and um, it was a real busy season for my job and my department. And we got a new office that required a lot of construction. And so my boss and one of my coworkers spent a lot of time doing construction after hours on this. Um, and it was kind of fun what they were doing, but it was also a lot of work um, doing some demo and, and building out some offices and cubicles and things. And my, the duties of my normal job were, were very consuming at the time, but I felt a lot of pressure to be involved with this construction project. I, I really wanted to be a team player um, and I just knew that because I wasn't making time or I didn't have time to help out, that I was disappointing my boss. And I, I was just like having this uncomfortable feeling from that until I, I just eventually had to say something. And, I, and I, I told him that I was really frustrated that I was in that position of disappointing him. And he told me, I want you to stay focused on your department. That needs to run really smoothly for us to be successful. So I'm not asking you to help with the construction project. You're doing just fine. And I realized the pressure that I was feeling was fabricated and the disappointment was imagined. And I, fed, I spent weeks stressed about that, you know, leading up to that time. The pressure that to, to measure up to some standard, to do, to, to do more, it may be real, you know, we get it from people or it might be imagined, but whether it's coming from your mind or from the outside or from someone, the idea often comes that you have to do to be okay. It's based on whatever you do. 
you're not doing enough or you're not doing the right things. And when, whenever we're living under that pressure, it's, uh, it's awful. We tend to feel a burden of shame or guilt and you can never rest. It's joyless. And in this message, I'd, I'd like to appeal to you to consider Jesus in a new way. And as you consider him today, that you wouldn't be motivated necessarily to do something different, but that you would maybe see differently, think differently, or, or, or view yourself in a different way. And by seeing differently, that you would, you'd click into a perspective that allows joy and a sense of well-being to spring up in your life. The famous writer Charles Spurgeon, he, he has this quote that has really intrigued me. He said, The Lord Jesus is the deep sea of joy. My soul shall dive in and be swallowed up in the delights of his company. I was, I'm very intrigued by this quote, but I would imagine that most people probably wouldn't be able to say this. Have you ever felt like you've been swallowed up in delight <laughs> in the company of Jesus? I think for many, they, they may not have experienced anything like that, or at least very not uh, on a very long stretch of time. But do you think that kind of joy and delight in Jesus is possible? What we find from Paul's letter to the Philippians is that the brightest, joy-filled life comes when we trust Jesus fully. He begins chapter 3 by saying, In addition, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To write to you again about this is no trouble for me and is a safeguard for you. He's saying it is time to rejoice. It's time to be upbeat and cheerful. And here's why. He says, what I'm about to say will contribute to your sense of security as a Christian. And it'll, what, I, what I'm about to say is about to help you watch out for dangerous, joy-zapping ways of living. Really, the first step towards a joy-filled life is to trust Jesus alone for your eternal security. Paul says first, he says, watch out for the dogs, watch out for the evil workers, for those who mutilate the flesh. Interesting language here. He says, for we are the circumcision, the ones who worship by the Spirit of God, boast in Jesus Christ, or in Christ Jesus, and do not put confidence in the flesh, although I have reasons for confidence in the flesh. So he's talking about circumcision, which really what he's referring to is Jewish religious traditions overall and people who say you've got to do certain things in order to be okay. You've got to take certain religious actions to establish a relationship with God or to find salvation. Naturally, we all seek salvation in some way. And what I mean by that is, is we all have this way of setting up some standard for living where I decide what's, what's okay for me to do, what, what's in bounds and what's out of bounds and as long as I live my life within this, this code, then I expect things will turn out reasonably well for me in the end. For some people, it's just, uh, I'll never lie or cheat, and as long as I do that. Or some people, it's being really, really generous. Or it might just be, mind, I mind my own business, you mind your own business, if we do that, we'll all be okay in the end. And as long as we live by this code of conduct that we set, that we think is right, we'll be safe. And in this way, I think I could probably break everybody down into three groups. <laughs> when it comes to matters of eternal security, there's probably, I think, three kinds of people. There, there's some that are self-confident, and they would say, I'm good. 
I mean, I'm not perfect because nobody's perfect. I've, I've made my mistakes, but my good is going to outweigh my bad. And in the end, I'm, I'm good to go. There's some that are unconfident. It's maybe the second kind of person. They'd say they feel somewhat insecure and they're not really sure where they stand with God or on eternal matters. And they just, or, or how they're feeling fluctuates. And then the third kind of person is, so they're self-confident, there's unconfident, but then there's confident solely in Christ. Where a person says, there is nothing I can do to make myself right before God. I have righteousness from God, but that's just based on faith. It's based on my trust in Jesus. And you might identify with one of these three, and Paul speaks directly to the confident folks, and he says, or the self-confident ones, he says, if anyone else thinks he's got grounds for confidence in the flesh, meaning in, his, in what he is or, or uh, in what he does, he says, I have more. And then he lists out a bunch of, it's a great resume, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, a Hebrew, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, regarding the law of Pharisee, regarding zeal, persecuting the church, regarding the righteousness that is in the law, blameless. He just lists out this great resume of, of great accolades and his great track record in life. But everything, he says, but everything that was a gain to me, I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. Now, Paul was practically perfect in every way. <laughs> the Jewish uh, Mary Poppins, so to speak. Um, maybe nowadays, fast forward to nowadays, think about the perfect guy. Who, who, what would the perfect man look like? Some, some man who is a, a model husband, father, an upstanding citizen in his community, this guy who's handy with tools, but he's modest and humble about it. Uh, maybe he's an all-American guy that played high school football, and, he, and he, every night he reads devotions to his kids. He's six feet tall with a tightly trimmed beard. <laughs> That's the kind of guy who should get into heaven, right? The kind of guy who would earn God's favor and blessing. The perfect guy. Paul was the ancient Israel version of the perfect man. He had every advantage. He had more good qualities wrapped up in, in himself than any other person had, than you could find in any other individual. He says, you know, he came from the best family upbringing in terms of, he talks about his lineage and his ethnicity. In terms of achievements, he had excellent education, which led to the best occupation. He had um, he was a religious elite leader known as a Pharisee, and he, was, he had a commitment to activism. He persecuted people that were nonconformists. Um, he led a moral life. He was, uh, no, no one could really accuse him of violating God's law. I would guess as a young man, he probably never even gave in to um, vices or addictions or, or youthful passions. He probably steered clear of all that stuff. The guy was squeaky clean. If anyone could be saved by his own works, it'd be Paul. This is perhaps often a similar approach we take when we try to find security and a sense of well-being today in our upbringing or in our achievements or in our job, the degrees we got or our behavior in life is a certain way or, or being committed to a certain cause or social justice issue. For anyone that thinks they're good enough on their own effort based on what they do or where they're coming from. Look at what Paul says next. He says, more than that, I also consider everything to be a loss 
All that good stuff I just stacked up in my life, I consider a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung. That's in the Bible. <laughs> so that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. So this flawless, impeccable resume, Paul says, is worthless in regard to the salvation of my soul. We have such a strong pull to build our sense of worth, our righteousness, or our salvation based on what we do. That our worth, our okayness in life is contingent on what we do. God is not expecting us to live a perfect life. He's not looking for that. If you're thinking that God is pleased with you, if you check all the right boxes, if you volunteer all your time, tithe 10% of your income, and you read your Bible every day, God's not impressed. Whenever we hit struggles, where maybe we have bitterness towards someone, or laziness, or we deal with doubt or guilt, we usually try to fix all that by trying harder, or just, you know, I just got to stop doing whatever it is that I'm doing, or I'll read more books or get more self-help. The good news is we don't need to come to God with our lives fully put together. We can't do that anyway. We don't need to come to church with the facade that we're on top of our checklist and that we're God's favorite. The good news is that God loves us exactly for who we are and where we're at, and that's okay. That's the bright side. That's how we look on the bright side. This really is, this is cause to rejoice. In Jesus Christ, our righteousness is of God, which is far better. This is a solid confidence. It's not contingent on what we do. You might want to be, you might be in a place in your life right now where you do want to get right with God. You want to have the confidence of securing eternity in the right place. The next step in that case would be to entrust Jesus fully with your life and live by his commands. And if you want to do that, let us know. Just give us a response in some way. Maybe you've been circling that decision in your mind for some time and you, and you want to nail it down. Let's talk about it. You, uh, we also have a baptism coming up next Sunday. Um, this is, this is a, a pretty exciting step for us as a church. And, and this really might be amazing timing in your life too. If you've made a commitment to Christ or you want to do that now and you've never been baptized, that really is one of the very first steps of obedience of a follower. Baptism is a way to go public with your faith and to, and to visually demonstrate that, the commitment that you've made. So we'll be uh, baptizing out in the park and it'll be exciting. We'll cheer you on and celebrate the new life. That comes, that comes as a result of trusting him. So this letter that we're looking at from Paul, it's, you got, we got to remember that it's set in the context of Paul writing to Christians about living with joy. And he has to tell these Christians to rejoice because many of them must have lost their joy. Many of them probably started out with strong excitement about their new faith and the freedom that came from believing in Jesus. But somewhere along the way, they lost track of that sense of peace and joy and have reverted back to the lie that God expected them to live up to the moral standards of the law. Many of us today in the church perhaps have lost our joy. We feel that crushing weight of sin or we feel like prayers are going unanswered. 
feel like we're failing to live up to the expectations of others or, or that there's sometimes feelings of hopelessness and discouragement that roll in. But I want you to know that God's not angry at you if you sleep in and you don't read your Bible in the morning <laughs> or if you get angry or if you tell a lie. The divine steamroller doesn't come out of heaven and come flatten you like a pancake. If you've lost your joy in your relationship with Christ, it could be that you're putting your confidence in your own efforts rather than trusting Christ. Don't lose your joy because you're trying to live rightly on your own. Even Christians, we followers of Jesus, we still try to earn our sense of okayness. We don't have a great word for that, that okayness. I've used that word a few times. The Hebrews had a word for that. It was shalom. Sometimes it's a greeting of hello or goodbye, but shalom, it means peace, well-being, wholeness in life, completeness, just a sense of things are good. What gives you this sense of wholeness and okayness? Is it when your wife is happy with you or your spouse? Um, do you have a sense of, of wholeness from a certain gender identity and just really clinging to that and just holding on to that? Or is it in a sense of financial stability, whether things are good and secure that way? Or is it achieving the Santa Clarita image of the house and the car and the job and the family and everything's put together, the good life? What if you have Jesus Christ, but some of these other puzzle pieces are missing or they're not going great? Is your joy and well-being in life disrupted? Or to put it another way, what is the one thing that has the greatest value in the world? If everything else is going wrong, the one thing that would be, would be great and the most important, what's the most important thing you could possibly focus your attention on? We just read it a few minutes ago, actually. Maybe you caught it. For Paul, that joy that was so deeply rooted in him was tied to his close knowledge of Jesus. In verse 8, he says, I consider everything else in my life to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. The supreme value is knowing Jesus. Because of him I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung. Everything else that I, I enjoy, put my hope in, that I spend time on, invest in in my life is like dung in comparison so that I may gain Christ. Paul was probably in his late 40s or 50s when he wrote this. And so here's Paul at an age when many are facing probably a midlife crisis. And he's saying that all that I built my life on is now worthless to me. This would have shocked his buddies, <laughs> the people he grew up with or went to school with. This is the, the, the things that we often build our lives on, the things that we cling to or get a sense of okayness or wholeness from, they have no value in comparison to the supreme value of knowing Jesus Christ. In fact, all that other stuff is, is actually, it's not like it's just lower in value, it's, it can actually be a hindrance. It's to be considered as dung. It's amazing, that's even in the Bible. That's why another big part of living a joy-filled life is to trust Jesus and to enjoy spending time with Him. When you want to get to know a person, you spend time together. When you spend time with Jesus, it's a way to know him better. 
Paul says there is supreme value in knowing Christ. In English, we use the word, same word to know. When we're talking about a person, we'll say, um, I know my neighbor, meaning I, I know his name, or I may know things about him, or I know the Dodgers' stats <laughs> in baseball recently. Um, in this case, when Paul says he wants to know Christ, he's not saying I, 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 I want to learn as many facts about him as possible. His height, his birthday, December 25th, maybe, <laughs> or his shoe size. It's not primarily a logical term of, of, that engages only his brain. To know that he's saying it, it's a term that engages his emotions and the relational part of him. Paul describes what it has meant to know Jesus, how the major trajectory of his life has, has shifted as a result of their relationship that there's been tremendous life change that has taken over him. The burdens of shame and guilt and the pressure to measure up to the standards that were put on him by the Jewish religion, that, that's massively changed. He wants people in Philippi, the Philippians, to know that Jesus has something to offer that no other person or religion or life strategy can offer. There's, no, there's nothing that will give you a richer, more rewarding life than knowing Christ, deeply knowing Him. All other things are not valuable in comparison. How well do you know Jesus? How deeply does your communion with Him run? Our knowledge and experience with our Savior is often blunted by other things. You know, we get pulled or distracted or, you know, it gets diminished. Spending time with Jesus takes time. <laughs> and our time is very valuable. We have a lot of time that's spoken for, our jobs and obligations, but we have discretionary time or free time. And that, often we want to spend on enjoyment for ourselves, things we just enjoy or relax or have fun. Or we may spend some of our time achieving more to make ourselves feel better. That's often the category I find myself in. I took a, a personality profile called Strengths Finder. Uh, years back and uh, one of my strengths according to this is that I'm an achiever <laughs> and uh, this is a strength because uh, achievers can get a lot of stuff done they can push through it's they have <laughs> I love the way it's written it says achievers have a whisper of discontent a voice that keeps pushing them to do more to stay up later to get more done I'm like that's it that is I have that <laughs> in my voice in my mind all the time a whisper of discontent. And that can be a good thing. It can be a strength. Oftentimes it is. But I can often fill up my life and my time with things that I think will help me advance or achieve or create goodness and okayness. Or we can just spend our time on enjoyment and ease. I wanted to uh, mention there's a great video clip from Billy Graham. He had an interview when he was 92. And Billy Graham was a man of phenomenal influence as a preacher. And he reached millions of people in his lifetime all around the planet and did a lot of good for the world that he lived in. He made it to age 99. And like Paul, he kept the faith and he, he finished well. And someone had asked him at the end of his life, if you had a second chance to go back, what would you do differently? And he said that he would travel less, which that was his main thing. That was the main gig that he'd travel and preach and do big um, gatherings and crusades. And 
Um, really, that was in some ways possibly a source of his worth and his identity was wrapped up in what he did. He's known for what he did. But he said, I would do less of that and I would pray more, meditate more, and just tell Jesus how much that I love him. <laughs> he's, that's what he said. I'm like, man, there, there was so much good that came from all of his efforts and him just expending all of his time in this big mission of his life. But he would give up much of that, much of the things that made him, you know, biography, autobiography worthy, <laughs> just to spend more time with Jesus while he was here on earth. Paul's greatest ambition was to know Christ better. Our ambitions for life should also look very different than the typical person. Is it possible that you need to let go of some things that make you feel a sense of okayness? Things that make you feel affirmed or feel like you're advancing or just things that you enjoy in order to deepen your communion with Christ. So far, I haven't spent any time describing practically how to spend time with him. (laughs) The Cliff Notes version is prayer, Bible reading, and praise. But we're currently off, we're running some um, small groups of men's and women's groups that to help develop an understanding and practice of this. Um, but also, I'd love to help you learn this as well. If you'd like some, some input, let me know. Finally, the last thing is, is to live a joy-filled life, um, is to trust Jesus as you walk through fire. Paul describes this incredible layer of knowing Christ that might make your stomach sink. I mean, you might, you might actually not want to hear this part. <laughs> In verse 10, he says that my goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. He says, I want to know Jesus so well that I long to share in his sufferings and even die as he died. What? This part doesn't really compute all that great. Jesus' suffering was sickeningly horrible. It was gruesome. Paul's eager for that. I don't... He says, I, I won't really know Jesus on a deep level until I've suffered like he suffered. That will bring me to a deeper understanding of who he is and what, his, what he's like. Here in the U.S., we tend to have a rather inadequate theology of suffering. For example, when churches have been treated differently through COVID and lockdowns by the government over the past year or two, um, if they're treated differently than businesses and stores, how do Christians typically respond? Or when Christians are ridiculed and treated with contempt in the media or just bashed, or when churches and Christian institutions are targeted by liberal agendas and hassled, Do we Christians demand to be treated differently, to be treated right, or do we rejoice that we're treated like Christ? We truly live in an amazing country, and for the time being, we have exceptionally good rights from the Constitution, and I I think we should defend that. Uh, We ought to. And I, I want Christians, but not just Christians, all humans, to be treated with respect and dignity. But I would suggest that our emotional response to being treated with injustice reveals whether we love Christ more or whether we love ease and comfort more. Actually, 
to pursue ease and, ease and comfort, Paul later calls people like that enemies of the cross of Christ. Knowing Christ means that we're open to suffering and injustice because knowing Jesus is worth more than even our comfort. And knowing Jesus includes experiencing his help and closeness when we're walking through the fire, when we walk through the extremely difficult times. Knowing Christ means we get free righteousness from God through faith. And this is amazing. This is the bright side. This is the incredibly good news that we can get eternal security and hope. But like train cars that are hitched, that are connected together, that incredible reality is hitched to sharing in his suffering and death. But that entire, it comes as a package, but the entire package is better than the alternative. Because this package, the final crowning experience in it is resurrection to new life. We trust Jesus to ultimately bring us to glory, eternal glory. And this confident hope is the big focus for next week. Um, We're going to look at how to see past the trouble in this world and to find hope in the life that Jesus is preparing for us. So Paul urges us to know Jesus Christ. How do you know if you're living out this passage, if you've really understood it and you're walking in it? If you're, if you're, how do you know if you've placed your hope confidently in Jesus? Well, it depends on whether or not you're walking in joy. If you're living with joy, are you? Do you feel that way? Do you know that to be true? When Jesus comes back for his people, each of us will be examined. An invasive investigation of your life will take place and it'll be found out whether or not you lived united to Christ, depending solely on him for salvation. The ultimate joy of a true follower of Jesus should be in Christ. We should find our happiness not in wealth, not in our careers or in our advancements and our skills, our abilities, our, our entertainments in the world in any form. But our happiness comes in communion with the Lord Jesus Christ and the eternal hope that he gives us. Actually, it's our privilege to rejoice. It's, it's a real privilege for us. We have a more established source of joy than you can find anywhere else in the world. Taking God seriously does not lead to gloominess. People watching us from the outside shouldn't get the impression that we're gloomy and irritated and bothered. Imagine the glories of truly knowing Jesus Christ. To live with joy, unperturbed, not scrambling to piece together a sense of okayness and trying to get on top of the guilt. Imagine walking through life with a buoyancy, a cheerful disposition, and just an incredible freedom from the pressure and guilt of not measuring up. We looked at what Spurgeon said earlier, that quote where he said, The Lord Jesus is a deep sea of joy. My soul shall dive in and be swallowed up in the delights of his company. Do you think it's possible for you to experience that? How might you trust in Jesus in a deeper way this week? Maybe it's by trusting him alone for your eternal security. Maybe it's to trust him and enjoy spending time with him. Or maybe it's to trust him as you walk through fire. As a church, there's two other ways that we're trusting Jesus right now. Um, and after next Sunday, we uh, no longer have a place to gather. Uh, in the, we're, the, 
we've been meeting in the park since January, or actually since last in the fall when we, when we got launched and had some preview services. But we are moving to a new space that we don't know where it is yet. And I'm working to get that figured out, but um, it hasn't come into place yet. Another way that we're trusting Jesus is for a worship leader. Um, Bruno is, has been leading for us. He's a college student that got, got us launched and started, but uh, when he graduates in just a few weeks, he'll be traveling abroad. And uh, so needing a place to meet and gather in person and to have a new worship leader, in some ways it feels a little bit like starting over, but actually what it truly is, is it's an opportunity to see God come through. He came through to get us started in the first place. So you can be praying for those things for us as we're looking to piece that together. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this beautiful morning that we have here. And I thank you, Lord, for just the incredible riches that comes from the grace of, that comes from Jesus Christ. It's, it's an amazing thing. And I, I thank you that we can trust entirely on you and not depend on ourselves for anything. Help us to really understand what that means. And for all of us, for each of us, our, our knowledge of Christ to deepen in a very profound way, in a meaningful, experiential way. Um, would you provide for us? Would you, would you show the way to the new gathering spot? And would you provide a person that can um, do the worship leading for us as well? I pray that we'd be able to team together and um, that you'd use our church to bring good and blessing and hope to many in Santa Clarita and, and those that are watching and listening online. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have a great week. I'll see you later.